Okay, so Voltaire said, the best is the enemy of the good. Confucius said, better a diamond with a flaw than a pebble without. And Shakespeare said, striving to better, oft we mar what well. And then Frano came along in the 21st century and said, done beats perfect. And what all those things have in common is they're essentially saying the same thing, just in different ways. And to me, that's basically what religions do. And it's essentially what psychology does. And spirituality, shamanism, mysticism, whatever whatever different ways you want to describe it, they're all, they're all ways and means of exploring the human condition, the human experience, trying to explain it, trying to put a bit of a framework around it, and trying to answer the question, which is essentially, you know, what's it all about? And there's no right or wrong in it, I don't think. There's mostly no right or wrong in it. Now, you have to be careful when you start talking in terms of right and wrong, because it's always bedded. It's a judgment, and a judgment is always bedded in your your axioms, your presuppositions, your, your, your philosophical bedrock, as I, as I refer to it. But we, you know, we have to make judgments to a degree to just get by in the world. But what I would consider to be a bad philosophy or a bad tenet of religion or psychology or nationality or, or whatever type of framework you're, you're talking about, when your worldview relies upon or requires the subjugation of a group of people, be it women, gays, uh, you know, the people of the wrong religion to you, different ethnicities, different races, different people of uh, different languages. If your if your worldview or belief structure requires that some or all of those whether it's you know immigrants or foreigners or whatever way you want to frame it are less than you that to me at least is bad to me a worthwhile worldview should include the flourishing of everybody and i don't think at least that that's too kind of childish or utopian we are different. We're, 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 we, we are very different. And by we, I mean people of different nationalities, different creeds, different races, different religions, different fucking beliefs, different ages, different sexes, different genders. You know, we're, we're all very different. But we're far more the same. We all have essentially the same fundamental fears, wants, needs, desires. And I think our differences should be celebrated. Because I think in, in difference, there's, there's real learning. And it speaks to what I, what I mentioned earlier about, by earlier I mean in a, in a relatively recent episode, this idea that what I try and offer people, or what it, what it, what it would appear that I've been offering people in, in hindsight, is, is my worldview. Because once you have, once you know somebody else's worldview, I think it becomes easier for you to either form your own worldview in the first place or better yet, develop your already existing worldview because 
you're essentially gifted a worldview by your society or by your culture or by your family or by your friends or by your community or by your school or your football club or whatever groups that you're in. You can't help but be of a certain opinion. And I'm 37, which means I was born in 1984, nine years before homosexuality was decriminalised in Ireland. A wet week after women got the vote and women were allowed marry and maintain their roles in the civil service. I'm not sure when that was done away with, but it was certainly within my mum's lifetime. And we're affected by these things. There's <laughs> I had to laugh. I, I don't know how it came up, but I, I was on YouTube recently and I came across a, a clip of the villain in He-Man, a guy called Skeletor. And Skeletor was after kidnapping some princess. I can't remember the details of it. And two of his henchmen were holding her so she didn't run away, basically. And I can't remember the details. Again, the details are kind of irrelevant. But she says, you know, let me go. And he turns around and goes, I'll let you go and I want to let you go. Or something to that effect. And she faints. And one of his henchmen goes, oh, Skeletor, she's fainted. And Skeletor turns around and goes, ha! Just like a woman. <laughs> you won't get away with shit like that these days. And rightly so. But I'm I'm a product of that that time. And like if, if anybody in my class in school, for example, was maybe a bit effeminate or a bit camp or a bit, for want of a better term, girly, not you know, macho basically if you were whatever the opposite of macho is, you were a faggot. And that wasn't as much a, a slur on your on your sexuality per se. It was just a derogatory term that you were uh, burdened with. And I've called many as a person that over the years. And I was about to say I regret it. I don't really regret it. I'm not about regret. I don't have much regret in my life. I wish that... The society that I grew up in was maybe a little bit more egalitarian and a bit more forward thinking and a bit more accepting of difference than it was, but it wasn't. It is now. I'm hopefully doing my bit to contribute to that. And in, in if 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 giving no other example, just this particular episode, what I'm trying to outline, I suppose, is my own failings, because. Like, I have them in abundance. Like, we all do. I'm not trying to say that I'm any fucking worse than anybody else, and I hope I never come across that I think that I'm better than anybody else. But I'm certainly a product of my environment. And I don't think any less of me and people like me now than I do of people, my mum and dad's generation, who probably didn't stand up against the Catholic Church as much as I, in hindsight, would have liked them to have done. But then again, maybe my kids will grow up and, and will say things like, Direct provision, Dad. You knew about that, didn't you? I did, son. And uh, what, what specifically did you ever do about it? Fuck all, uh, son, to be honest with you. Fuck all. And maybe that's something that I live to regret. 
I haven't spoken about it before, um, and I'm not going to drone on about it now because I don't know a whole pile about it. Everything that I know, to be honest with you, is what I've heard from Mr. Blind by Bow Club, who I'm a huge fan of and who I will do an episode on in the not-too-distant future as part of the new series on people who've influenced me. But according to Mr. Blind Boy, he thinks that it's essentially an abomination. It's a step up from fucking the Magdalene laundries. It's our, it's our Magdalene laundries, I do believe he's, he's said on multiple occasions. The idea being that it's what we'll look back on as having done nothing about if we do nothing about it. Even though we're all kind of aware of it. I heard recently a fucking podcast, I don't know who it was. But they were referencing something some leading Nazi said post-World War II. I think it could have been during the the, the Nuremberg trials where the Nazis were held to account for their crimes against humanity. And I think the Nazi had been asked multiple times, what did he know? And he said that that was the wrong question. And he said, in hindsight, the right question is, why didn't you find out more about the things you didn't know about? And what I took from that was, he had kind of known whatever was going on over in Auschwitz and different places and... You know, he knew the Jews weren't really exactly getting a fair deal, to put it mildly, but didn't know any of the details and was kind of happy that he didn't know the details. He was kind of, he was happy enough with his own ignorance. And there's an element of that that rings through with me in relation to direct provision. And most likely a couple of other things that aren't springing to mind. But in relation to direct provision, I've heard what Blind by Boat Club has said on the matter, I've no reason to doubt him. I think he's an incredibly credible person. You're not going to make my list unless you're pretty credible. It's not a necessity. But it, it goes a long way in, in make, in, into making my list of people who've influenced me. If you're not particularly credible, you know, good luck getting on that list. Now, having said that, there's another guy who... I actually hadn't thought of putting on the list, but but I might do. Uh, his name is Milo Yiannopoulos. Now, Milo, Milo Yiannopoulos is a fucking lunatic. He's a, a provocateur by trade, basically. And he's an incredibly, incredibly divisive figure. He's a... I don't want to mischaracterize him now, but so take the sentiment of this and none of the specifics. He's a Black Lives Matter supporting white supremacist. He's a homophobe who, quote, loves sucking cock. And his whole thing is to provoke. And he became so provocative that he got himself banned off Twitter, I believe. Now, I haven't seen him or heard of him in a, in a long time. I don't know what's going on with him. But credible, I, I don't know if credible is the right word that I'd use. But he was massively influential on me because he was a, like a one-man case study. And it never ceased to amaze me how he could get the upper hand on people who would try and take him down. So... Again, I'm going, to, I'm going to exaggerate to get the point across. He, for example, would make the case 
Now, I'm, I'm making this up, okay, just to prove the point. It's, it, I'm not quoting him in any way, shape, or form. But he would make the case, for example, that it's okay to beat up children. And he'd be brought onto some radio show or some TV station or whatever else, and the host would be licking her lips or, or rubbing his hands together, going, <laughs> I'm going to fucking ruin this lad's career in two seconds flat. Like. And he'd put forward a case. And the the host would invariably end up tripping up over the words trying to discredit somebody who was saying you should beat up children. But Yiannopoulos is an intelligent, articulate guy. Messed up in a million and one different ways. But razor smart. And very well read. And knows exactly what buttons to push and when. And he'd give you he'd give you pause for concern, and in in, in a good way, because there's something else. And I I didn't mean to think about this, but I'll, I'll certainly get it out now because it's something that I've been meaning to talk about for a good while. This idea of straw manning and steel manning. So, if I wanted to straw man the Catholic Church, I'd say. The Catholic Church are a bunch of paedophiles. They fucking they let paedophiles rape children. That's the end of that. That's straw manning. That's just taking something and running with it and not really getting deep. It's a straw manning is a real surface thing. You, you take the most ridiculous thing you can think of about the thing that you're opposed to, and that you just fucking run riot on it. Steel manning, on the other hand, is you take your opponent's strongest position. And you discredit it. So if I was the steel man in the Catholic Church, I would say something like, any member of the Catholic Church will burn in hell for all eternity by their own standards. Because Jesus preached acceptance and pushed back against authoritarianism. He told people that God was in their hearts and not in buildings. And... Any practicing Catholic these days who doesn't get sick at the thoughts of the crimes of the Catholic Church will, you know, burn in hell and fire and brimstone for all of time. Now, that was an off-the-cup, sorry, an off-the-cuff straw man, steel man example, but hopefully you get the sentiment. And Ianopolis had a knack for steel manning somebody's argument. Somebody would make the claim that, I don't know, that he was homophobic or that he was racist or that he was, I don't know, whatever it was, whatever the criticism was, rightly or wrongly attributed to him. And he'd turn around and say, you're, you're, you're a reasonable person. You're a rational, logical person. And the host would invariably kind of smile and nod and say, yes, 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 I am. And then Yiannopoulos would spend the next five minutes tearing that person's life down because of how irrational and unreasonable they are being in this moment and have been throughout their entire life and would essentially make them look like an out-and-out hypocrite. And more often than not, the host would be left going... They wouldn't have the words to combat what they were saying because love him or loathe him, he was original. Now, a pretty twisted character... He has um, pretty messed up views in relation to homosexual relationships between older men and younger boys, which I personally 
feel is apparent. But you'd want to get your fucking you'd want to get your fucking facts in order before you went face to face on TV or over a podcast to debate it with them. And there was something that I find very attractive about that. There was a uniqueness to him, you know, wrapped up in his originality. That I, I don't know if I admire is the right word, but certainly was very influenced by. And I always try and take my detractors' stance, view what they're giving out about from their perspective. And it's always in an effort to do a number of things, I suppose, to, to A, bolster my own opinion, B, tear down my own opinion, or C, you know, a, a change tack slightly, maybe. Continuous improvement is what I'm after, I suppose. It's what I'm all about. Incremental steps, bit by bit. And I started off this podcast talking about how we view things from different reference points. But the things that we're viewing are essentially the same things. Because there's far more crossover between mine and my wife's relationship and a gay man and his boyfriend or husband's relationship there's far more crossover there than than I think there is difference because again we're we're all on this planet together we're we're all here as one big giant human family we might look different we might sound different we might have radically different views of one thing over another thing but a large part of 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 my life and and what I do with this podcast or at least what I strive to do with this whole off the lead thing is to just better understand the world around me. And I would include myself as part of the world around me. Because I, I think that there's there's very little, if any, difference between the outside and the inside. Like, what there is around you is what's inside you. Think of the type of person that loves botanical gardens. They love walking around flowers and manicured hedges and seeing the petals and all that jazz and literally stopping to smell the roses like that person again broad sweeping generalization alert that type of person person typically is going to be a softer gentler kinder more loving type of person than somebody that goes fucking flowers load of shite which begs the question who's right and the answer to me at least is they both are Coming from their perspective, they're right. And to say that your perspective is a better perspective than somebody else's, oh, that's a bit fucking squirrely like. I think you're, the people who have the most to say and the people that are the most convincing and the most congruent are the people that can simultaneously look at something from half a dozen different perspectives. And that's what I love about comparative uh, mythology. That's what I love about looking at all the different ways that human beings have tried to figure out the world around them and seeing what's common amongst them and essentially picking the best bits out of everything and trying to trying to form your own worldview. That's what I'm all about. And I do that with psychology as well. And this is why I think, to a degree at least, that psychology is more 
similar to religion than it is a hard science is because psychology there are there are as many different ways of viewing psychological thinking as there are ways of viewing religious thinking and what i like to do about with uh, sorry what i like to do with different psychological viewpoints is to to pick what i like most about all of them and to try and weave them together to create my own worldview now there's there's an argument to be said there that if you don't pick one worldview and stick with it and you're you're mixing and matching them all there's an argument that says the reason you're doing that is because you don't understand any of them and i wouldn't claim to understand any of them and i'm not setting out to learn them all either because there's things that i've discovered that i could have just read in a book but i didn't i fucking discovered them but they've already been discovered frano yeah and like what what's your point like people are so mad to hoover up everything that's already been discovered instead of discovering these things for themselves and there's fucking to me at least there's very few better feelings than coming up with a viewpoint and then realizing that Socrates said the exact same fucking thing or some other big dick fucking philosophical thinker of our of our time and personally i don't think people do half enough of that i don't think people take the time to have a think for themselves and i think a big part of that is we're quick to shoot people down somebody you know plucks up a bit of cover, cover somebody plucks up a bit of courage and says do you know what i've been thinking about i've been thinking about how much i love my wife or whatever the fuck it is and the lads watching the football are like yeah yeah good good, good luck with that one and the person who had that thought and plucked up the courage to fucking say something that they've been thinking about kind of goes oh fuck that fell fairly fucking flat i'll never go there again and the mistake that they're making there is they probably shouldn't ever go there again with that audience but if you don't have a sounding board if you don't have somebody to speak about these things too fucking find them and it's funny because what's coming out of the wash here is i could never find someone to do that and that's what fucking has me harping on into the microphone here that's what has me coming up with new WhatsApp numbers. Oh wait, nine sixty forty seven eight eight eight. Looking for a bit of fucking feedback. All I'm looking for is a sounding board. All I'm looking for is a is a is someone to bounce the ball back to me a little. Because you know, th- there's a couple of people in my life that I've drawn closer to me, I suppose, over the last three or four years of 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 having this off the lead thing. But you know, they're they're not beating down my door. On the contrary, I mean. If anything, I feel a little bit embarrassed texting them the odd time that I do with my fucking ponderings because I don't want to be annoying people. And it harks back to that old adage. What is it? Uh, Not build it and they will come. Oh, fuck. If you can't find what you're looking for, you have to make it. And I suppose what I'm trying to make with this off the lead thing is a community and I haven't spoken about this in fucking ages because it's very hard to build a fucking in-person community when you've got a fucking five kilometer restriction or whatever it is but that's all fucking gone like this whole covid thing you know it's it's not quite in the rear view mirror yet but we're you know we're approaching it at fucking speed and uh, fingers and toes and arms and legs crossed that 
we are coming to the fucking end of it. I, for one, can't wait to get back fucking training. Doing a bit of fucking MMA with the lads. And even in fucking MMA, like in... In MMA, there's savage crossover in relation to what I'm talking about here. And again, this is just the fucking beauty of actually just sitting down and talking extemporaneously like this. Just ad-libbing like this. You never know what the fuck you're going to come out with. I said it a couple of episodes ago, your, your thoughts are like farts. You never know what they're going to sound like until they come out. And in relation to MMA, MMA is quite like... I'm, I'm using MMA as a synonym for fighting here. MMA and fighting are very like religion... And psychology, insofar as their methodologies, their ways of viewing a particular thing. So mixed martial arts is the way of viewing competitive fighting and unarmed combat or whatever way you want to word it. And there are different there are different schools of thought. And I think that's what mixed martial arts did because before the invention of the UFC and before the term mixed martial arts was coined, for the most part, there was different schools of thought. There was the jiu-jitsu heads who thought it was all about chokes and arm locks. There was the wrestlers who thought it was all about being able to physically dominate your opponent and having the ability to put them where you want them. Then there was the the boxers who thought it was all about fucking fists to the face. Then there was kickboxers who was, you know, fists to the face and shins to the temple. And then it was my type, which is, you know, elbows to the temple, knees to the ribs and fists to the face and kicks to the fucking head and, and everything in between. But my type lacked the ground game. It, it lacked the wrestling and it lacked the... The blood chokes and the air chokes. And mixed martial arts is like... Mixed martial arts is like the unifying theory of... Of fighting. It's, it's what you get through empiricism. Like, you know, does it work? The answer is yes or no. How does it work is kind of irrelevant. I can put you in a triangle and I can choke you unconscious. But I mightn't necessarily know... Like my ha- my hamstring is involved, my calf is involved, my quads are probably involved, you know, my hips are certainly involved, my arms are involved. But I I can't walk you through the processes of how my my knee extends and how my hip twists and how my brain tells my fucking heart to pump more blood to particular parts of the body and, and all the rest. But I, I can't walk you through the details of neurons firing and the connections that are there to, to make all this thing, thing come together. But I don't fucking need to. The guy taps or he goes unconscious and that's all you need to know. And that's the empiricism. That's, that's knowing by doing. And I think if anything's come out of this recording, it's... The idea that what I'm after is almost like a, a spiritual mixed martial arts. It's a it's a unifying theory, a, a toe, a, a theory of everything. I actually heard another term by a guy I'm a, a big fan of. Um, Chris Williamson's his name. He has a podcast called, I think it's called Modern Wisdom. And he was talking to either Michio Kaku or Brian Green, two of the physicists that are on my list. And it was either he himself, Chris Williamson, or one of his guests that was talking about the theory of everything. And he called it something else that I hadn't heard before. The God something. The God equation. 
That's what it was. The theory of everything, the unifying, the unifying theory. And I've spoken before about the idea of having a unifying, or at least striving to get a unifying theory of the religions. And what I'm looking for, I think, is a, a psychological equivalent to mixed martial arts. And it's interesting as fuck as well to note, there's a fucking fascinating documentary on the UFC, the UFC being the ultimate fighting championship, which essentially invented the sport of, of mixed martial arts, not intentionally. Basically what they did was a group of lads got together and said, okay, right, look, for thousands of years, people have been saying, which is the best to do? Is it Kung Fu? Is it Karate? Is it Kickboxing? Is it Muay Thai? Is it Jiu Jitsu? Is it Wrestling? Like what's, you know, who's the baddest man on the planet and what can they do? So that's basically what they did. They invented an arena, which was the what's now called the octagon, which would contain the fighters because a boxing ring was no good because people would just get fired through the, the ropes. So they came up with an eight-sided, an eight-sided figure because they didn't want the corner because you, you can pin somebody in a corner. And when there's eight sides, there's literally twice as many sides in an octagon as there is a boxing ring. And that, at the very least, will half the angle of the corner so it's not a right angle anymore i don't know what an angle is but it's more acute or obtuse or whichever fucking angle it is but the idea of that is that you can't get pinned in it not to the same degree at least and it was a chain link fence which meant that you could fight up against it as if it was a wall but you couldn't fall through it and the spectators could obviously always see what was going on on the inside of it and they just opened their doors to the hardest cunts in the world and basically said right you want you reckon you're the fucking toughest guy in the world right happy days in you jump and they had a tournament and that was UFC 1 and was it Heist Gracie I can't remember one of the Gracies that won it out he was a Jiu Jitsu practitioner and to a degree that answer that question had been answered which is the best the best is Brazilian Jiu Jitsu but then the Brazilian Jiu Jitsu guys started coming up against lads who had a lifetime of, let's say, kickboxing experience and six months BJJ training. And what happened was then, the BJJ guys ended up getting kicked in the temple or kneed in the face and knocked unconscious. And there's a saying in, in, uh, in MMA, how does it go? How do you turn a black belt into a black and blue belt? You punch him in the face. And there's a lot to be said for that. But that's, I think, what, what the spiritual or religious or psychological world needs is a, a metaphysical octagon, basically. Somewhere that we can duke it out and where there, there can be a winner at the end because there's, there's something to the, to the competitiveness of mixed martial arts that, that gives it its beauty. Because at the end of the fight... It's very rare that there's a complaint, really. Like, you either win or you lost. Draws do happen and, you know, referees jump in at the wrong time. They jump in too early. They jump in too late. Some lads take drugs. Some lads mess about in other ways. And there's all forms of cheating going on. And that, you know, the UFC strives to stamp that out as best they can and fair play to them. And you'd have to do the equivalent in the more... In, in the more cognitive realm. That's what we need. We need a cognitive octagon. With defined rules. And at the end of it we need a winner and a loser. But like in the UFC and in mixed martial arts and in, in competitive 
unarmed combat sports. Just because you lose the fight, it doesn't mean that your discipline isn't as good as the other discipline. It just wasn't as good in that particular bout. But fighters often come back and fight each other a second time, and indeed a third time. And with the more cognitive battles, the more verbal sparring, say, like you, you could spar ten times a night. Like you're, you're limited to only fighting a couple of times a year as a professional. So that's worth fucking further inquiry now, I have to say. Certainly, and again, it's just fucking... The proof is in the pudding. It just goes to show, like, I never would have... Or maybe I would have, but... I hadn't gotten to that idea of a cognitive octagon... Before right now. Before this moment. That that thought has never entered my head before. And who knows, the next fucking five episodes could be all about it. And if I never mention it again... On the podcast, you can be sure as shit that I'm going to be thinking about it for the next God knows how long. Possibly the rest of my fucking life. And on that note, I'll catch you soon.